Hello and welcome to the penultimate Ulster Rugby Roundup of the season. I am Jonathan Bradley, bag and the host chair, which is actually just the same chair as I've been in for every episode of this interminable year of pandemic podcasting. But the end is nigh in every respect, and here to help me celebrate are Michael Sadler. Hi, Michael. Oh, hi, everyone. Sorry, I'm in the middle of a drink there. Sorry, non-alcoholic, I should say. Water, very hot. Hi, everybody. Good to be back. And Adam McKenna, he is, I have not caught unawares, thankfully. You haven't, but I, I think I feel like I'm unawares now after seeing Michael take a drink as his name was being called out. I have I have no water in front of me here, so I'm good to go. Yeah, next season we're gonna have to do this podcast in video form just so people got the, the true glory of Michael choking on his water there as he realized I was coming to him. But so no game to review. Obviously, we had planned to look back at the uh, Scarlet's game, but as of uh, Thursday, that was not going to be the case for the cancellation. Obviously, there's a fair amount of interest into this week's game going ahead, not just from an Ulster perspective, but also from the Edinburgh perspective, who also had um, one corona or COVID-19 case in their own camp. So, Adam, you were asking Dan the questions yesterday in the uh, in the live section of the press conference about, about this game going ahead. And I suppose, <laughs> perhaps, even it, should it go ahead, whether Ulster will have a, enough players to field what will look like a normal enough team. So, what was his response yesterday? Yeah, I've got the phone on the table beside me just waiting for the call-up because I feel like at some point it will turn to me. Yeah, four players obviously contracted COVID-19. They are out, full stop. It doesn't matter even if they return negative cases or negative uh, tests this week. They will be out for Saturday. Nine players are close contacts. If they return negative tests throughout this week, then they will be available for Saturday But the problem is, as Dan was detailing to us in the press conference, these guys haven't been able to train for the last week and a half because they had to isolate once they were determined to be close contacts. So they've been isolating for 10 days, haven't been able to train. And in some cases, as Dan was saying, he might have to throw them into the team, having pretty much not trained since for for a week and a half before the game. So we believe their isolation ends on Friday, which means at most they're going to get captain's run on Friday before the game and then they'll they'll travel over to Edinburgh so not ideal preparation Dan says they haven't had enough players in training to have a full 15 against another 15 which ideally you would do in the build-up as as ideal preparation so not ideal for Ulster heading into this game and whenever you consider the fact that it's a dead rubber in the Rainbow Cup it's you're justified in thinking this game is is one that both sides would maybe be happy just to set aside and not play, but that's the situation for Ulster going into this game, which is pretty wild, to be perfectly honest. Yeah, I mean, obviously the Wednesday, or as it would be this week, perhaps Thursday training session with the game in on Saturday with the 15 against 15 match. We always hear about the importance of the other members of the squad preparing the first team for the game that's going to come with that big training session in the week. Obviously, it's not going to happen. There's up to 20 players unavailable at the minute because you have to take in the injuries into consideration as well. Like There's seven, seven key players out on the injured list at the minute, including both sort of front line loose heads, or the, the two top loose heads, and Jack McGrath and, and Eric O'Sullivan. So, Michael, as much as we all expected that the Rainbow Cup was going to see somewhat experimental selections, 
we could see things completely out of left field this week in Murrayfield if this game goes ahead. Yeah, we could very easily. It's head wrecking, really, you know, for Dan McFarlane and the coaching staff to have to to deal with this situation. And you know, really, I mean, common sense should prevail here, and they really ought to do something about this game and try to basically call it now, which is essentially not play it. I, I don't really see any value in playing it, apart from the fact that Edinburgh may may want to play it on the basis they've still one more round to go. Other than that, I can't see any point whatsoever in playing this game with the current environment, not only at Ulster Rugby, but we're not even entirely sure where, what the situation is uh, in the Edinburgh camp. Never mind, of course, the situation generally with COVID, I think, in, in Scotland as, as we speak. And it was a very surreal experience yesterday being a part of the Ulster press conference, discussing these matters and hearing it all explained and thrashed out. And just thinking to yourself, how on earth can anybody, you know, <laughs> progress towards playing a game of professional rugby with this backdrop, especially on the basis that it's the Rainbow Cup and, and, and a meaningless, utterly meaningless game you know, for both teams? But it must be an extremely difficult situation for all the players concerned and coaching staff. They can't train. And they've got to prepare for a game where guys could pick up injuries, which could linger with them over the, the course of the summer and, and, and all for nothing, really. And particularly, I suppose, you know, without being able to prepare properly is essentially what I'm getting at. And of course, the risks and dangers of traveling, being in Scotland, you know, playing against the Edinburgh players and what that may entail as well for players moving forward with, you know, with, with COVID still very much out there. Have we ever had back-to-back podcasts where the game was cancelled at the end of the week? <laughs> Probably not. This could be a record. It's got to be, hasn't it? <laughs> Well, I mean, th- this is part of it as well. The fact that it, this has come so late in the season against a backdrop of a time when ever-increasing numbers of the population are vaccinated. And it has, I think, created that sort of sense of being out the other side of this, the fact that everything's opening up again. And then this was something that you sort of expected to happen earlier in the season and it didn't Dan Farland mentioned that yesterday that they got so far through the season without having a cancelled fixture and then to have it at the very end is a disappointment in that regard and then I suppose the deflation as well like you know last week's presser and an awful lot of the material that didn't get used was players talking about how much they were looking forward to playing in front of fans in Kingspan Stadium again that now won't happen until uh, until next season I mean just, I suppose, as it would have put a cap on the end of a very difficult year with, on a hopeful note, I suppose, to see fans in the stadium, Adam, like just how, how much of a blow was it to lose, not the game, but that last home game of the season? Yeah, I think people don't realise how much having that final home game means to players because both Greg Jones and Nick Timoney brought it up this week in the press conference, how they really wanted to give the guys who are leaving the team at the end of the season a good send-off. And no doubt the players themselves would have wanted to have that at Kingspan Stadium. You remember guys like Johan Muller and Ruin Pinar, the reception they got when they left. And, well, I don't think anybody who's leaving at the end of this season would have gotten a similar send-off. Probably Louis Ludic would have been the closest to it. But you still want to have that one final hurrah in front of the home fans to say thanks for your support and let the players say thanks for your service on the pitch in return. So it's massive. And I feel for the players, I feel for the fans, it, you know, we have been in a very privileged position where we've been able to get to the home games. And I was actually speaking to someone about this the other day and I was saying, you know, it, it hasn't really hit me until last 
Scarlet's game how fortunate we have been because there are people who haven't been to a game in person this season at all and we've been able to go to all of them and we're in a very blessed position to actually have done that so I, I do have a massive amount of sympathy for people who have maybe gone a year almost two years without actually seeing a game in person so just just to sort of cap off the season I think it would be massive for Ulster to actually have this game if they don't, they end, They go into the summer having lost four games in a row. Their European season came to a, to a terrible finish whenever everyone thought they could potentially win the Challenge Cup. They lose three Interpros and they go into the off-season with a lot of uncertainty over how to progress forward. So I think even just to have the Edinburgh game, for guys to have one final head out to look at what you're able to produce in a one-off game and it, even, even just for the mental state of the guys, just to have one more game, just to round off the season, it can be in a positive mindset if they get the win, and it just gives the coaches something to take forward uh, into the summer, w- would be massive. So for, for all the doom-mongering of this game doesn't matter and this game probably shouldn't go ahead, to actually play it would be massive, I think, for, for the playing staff. Yeah, you're not wrong about the fans, obviously, like... You know, that Cheetahs game in February 2020 does feel like a lifetime ago. And there were, I suppose, 500 fans who likely hadn't seen the team play since since that game that lost out in the chance. But that is, um, I suppose, the world that we're still living in. I mean, Michael, Adam mentioned it there just about the uh, the sequence of results to finish this campaign. Charles game technically a draw, even though the, the points went to Scarlets, but it'll uh, it'll still feel like four defeats on the spin. Well, yeah. <laughs> assuming the game goes ahead, like how important do you think it is that Ulster break this sequence before before the summer, so that we're not starting next season with you know writing previews saying you know the team that lost five in a row to finish the last campaign, or alternatively given the way that the season's gone and given, I think as Dan McFarland described it yesterday, a competition that we have not fallen in love with when he spoke about the Rainbow Cup, does the result matter on Saturday? I think the result will matter, yeah. I mean, I, I don't know if we will write it come the next season. We'll be so weary, um, you know. Um, I'm coming back writing. fresh, Michael. I don't, I don't know about you, but like, come August. I don't know. Again. I don't think... I don't think the off season's long enough now, Jonathan. Really, um, I, th- I think we'll really appreciate this break. <laughs> I think, uh, look, yeah, it's not it's not significant, really. But I think they they do definitely. I mean, naturally, any team that goes out on the the pitch wants to win, and you know, they, they the sequence is not it's not a good look, um, and they, they they will want to change that. And as as was mentioned in 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 uh, the press conference, going away into whatever you know downtime they're allowed off the back of a win will give them a little bit of a boost and will also help the players um you know walking away from you know this season and what, what has been a bit of a wreckage uh, really at the back end of it with the challenge cup being the most disappointing and significant result of all so i think it, it, it if they do get to play it and I don't, I don't agree. I don't, I don't think it's a wise thing to actually play this at this juncture anyway. But if they do get to play it, they'll very much want to 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 get the W. Um, and I don't think they really care what we might be writing about next season. But um, certainly, if if they if they began next season with another defeat, that would certainly uh, that would certainly perhaps uh, bring all that back into play again. 
I know. I, th- I think they very much will want to win. And of the, the type of team that we believe that Dan McFarlane might be pulling together, uh, there'll be a number of people there who, who want to show him that you know it's not just a question of them filling in gaps. That he can show faith in them, and they can deliver for him going forward. You've also got to bear in mind that there are quite a few individuals who are still trying to get into the Ireland squad. So one more game would be massive for them. As much as coaches will say that they don't have any sort of recency bias, there is absolutely a case that the better you play closer to the squad being announced, the more likely you are to be in it. So guys like Nick Timoney, James Hume, Michael Lowry, guys who will no doubt be thinking that they are at least on the periphery of the Ireland squad, if not in with a shot of making it for the USA and Japan games, they'll want to go out and give one more performance to sort of tip the scales in their favour and convince Andy Farrell they deserve to be in that squad. So for, for, for those guys, if you've been sitting inactive for effectively three weeks leading into the, into the squad announcement, whereas Munster, Leinster, Connacht, all their players have been playing for the last three weeks, then you're definitely going to lose a step in that selection process. So I think for them, certainly they would love to get out there and just have that one more game to try and push themselves over the line. Well, you've led us into uh, to a listener question that we had from Big Jim there, Adam. Um, will many of our younger guys get a run out in green this summer? So I'm going to ask each of you for the one uncapped player in Ulster that you think is most likely to play this summer. And I don't want to hear Tom O'Toole from either of you. Why? Because I think he's too obvious, frankly. Okay. You know, he's been the third choice tight head. The top two choice tight heads are gone, you know. And I, 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 I don't want to cop out. Well, I'm, I'm going to cop out anyway. I'm going to give you two names. I, I think... Uh, I thought you were just going to give me Tom O'Toole there, even though I told you... No, that. no, no, he's not. Well, I could, I could. Uh, I, I, would, uh, I would go because I don't really know that they both make it, but I do think one of them will, James Hume and Michael Lowry. So, you know, those are the guys for me. Sorry, it's a bit of a cop out. It's not one. Anyway, if Michael's going to say two, I'll, I'll say two. Then um, yeah. I've already mentioned him, Nick Timoney. I think he's I think he's been brilliant since December, really. Uh, and I think it would be a travesty if he wasn't named in the squad at least. And I would like to hope that he would definitely play at least one of the two games. I think him and Gavin Coombs at, at number eight would be a, an excellent little battle uh, within the squad. Um, and I'm going to go with Robert Balakun as well. He's been He's been brilliant since he came back from injury as well. I think he just he just has that predatory instinct down the, down the touchline that uh, I think Ireland would really benefit from. So those are the two I'm going to go for. Yeah, so you successfully named all the on-cut players that weren't so much there. So <laughs> by not giving yeah. you some, I just forced you into a different type of cop-out, but, but there we are. You got, any, you got any ones you want to throw in, Johnny? You well, I think the Nick Timoney one's an interesting shout because he's definitely over the last five months probably put his hand up more th- more frequently than anybody else within Ulster. But then you look at Caelan Doris coming back. You look at, as you mentioned, Coombs. You look at Scott Penny. Obviously, CJ's retiring and Jack Conan's on the lines, but there's still just such a glut of options there. Well, I've, I feel like you won't take O'Mahony on this tour. I feel like no, this yeah, is the yeah, kind of tour where... He, I don't think. Yeah. And you still need a sort of small cadre of leaders, I think, to get real value out of it. Plus, you don't want to lose to Japan <laughs> again after the World Cup. 
And the other thing is, you know, we're talking about somebody who captained the Lions in 2017 in Omahani. So how much is that going to play in the thinking of keeping these guys like Omahani, like Saxton, ticking over in case the call does come from the Lions, you know? And that's something you have to look at as well. But, like, I think Nick actually mentioned it himself yesterday. Like, the competition in the back row is is unreal. But do we know where Dan Levy is in regards to his recovery? I just can't remember. Is he going to be available this summer or not? I'm not sure. I, th- I think I think he's available, but it's one where he's been out for so long. I think you can't justify mm. bringing him in over guys like Coombs or Penny or like yeah. if you, if you pick Levy over Penny from a Leinster perspective, I think that would be really harsh on the form that Penny's been showing because he has been outstanding in the Pro 14 this year. So to drop him for a guy who has played, I think, only four or five games yeah, for yeah. over the last year and a half, I think that would be extremely harsh on Penny. Huge amount of credit in the bank, though. Like, mm. you know, for you Matt, have a best player in the, in the Grand Slam in 2018. I know that's more than three years ago now, but um, yeah. We do not again, have the ball. It's a competitive yeah. position where you, you, know, you look at James Hume and you mention the centres. Like, for me, James Hume's been the most consistent Ulster player across the season, probably along with John Cooney once he found his form again at the start of the, you know, coming into the start of the season, I suppose. And you think about Bondiaki being away, Robbie Henshaw being away, obviously Ringrose will still be there. Farrell, Chris Farrell, and Tosky. Um, Hard, I know. Yeah, but... Tom and you Bailey also don't get for Connacht. That's true, yeah, you, you, yeah. You, you don't know as well what Andy Farrell's really looking for here now, do you? Um, whether he really wants to use this to ex- to explore depth, or whether he just wants to make sure that he wins the games. If you look at how Ireland approached the 2017 tour, um, that was used to give a lot of uncapped guys their first uh, experience of test rugby. And I feel like this is the time that you would do it. If you look at other ones, once you get to the other side of this tour, you're sort of starting that two-year run to the World Cup where you're starting to get your team together and there's no real time to bring guys in on a whim and hope that you can start to bed them in. This is the last chance where you can get guys in and say, here's the international setup. This is what we expect of you. And if you're going to get called up from here on out, now you've got a taste for it. I think this is like the last chance saloon for guys to sort of say you're in our thoughts for the World Cup, and if not, then you've really got to impress us at provincial level in order to break your way in. Yeah, I mean, it certainly was the last time you look at 2017, and that was Jacob Stockdale, James Ryan, Andrew Porter, mm. all making their debuts, really with a view to being key pieces to varying degrees by uh, by the World Cup in Japan two years later. So, yeah, I would say it's a it's a very similar boat. This is a sort of not finalizing of the panel, but this is, I suppose, looking at the group that they're going to move forward with in the next two years of this cycle. So yeah, it's going to be a fascinating squad announcement. I think it's the it's announced the week after the final, I believe. So it's that week after the nineteenth of June is when we'll know. So, yep, certainly one to watch out for. So, all yeah, also from Big Jim, we have we have a second question of: Do we know anything about the conference makeup for next year's league? Not necessarily the conference makeup, but Adam, what do we know about the, what do we know about the structure of the fixture list? I suppose. Well, yeah, we, we don't have confirmation on 
how the conferences are going to be structured, but we assume it's going to be something similar to this year where it'll be two Irish, two Welsh, one Scottish, one Italian, and then you add in two South African teams. So you have two conferences of eight to make up the 16 teams. And then there's only going to be 18 games uh, in order to reduce the schedule. And that hopefully means that you'll have more games where the top stars are, are playing. You'll play one game against every other team so you'll play them either home or away, and then the extra three fixtures will be against the the other Irish provinces. So you'll play both yeah, home and away against the Irish provinces, and you'll play either home or away against all the other 15 teams. So I suppose the biggest takeaway from this really is the fact that who's in your conference isn't as important as it has been previously because it doesn't influence your fixtures anymore, essentially yes. because there's no value in teams only making one our trip to South Africa to play one game. So you're going to have a South African away trip, presumably that encompasses your two South African away games. But it's not a case of, oh, you're in the conference with Edinburgh, so you have to play Edinburgh home and away. Or I suppose the, the more prominent example was always whether you got the better Welsh teams or the worst Welsh teams or the better Italian team and the worst Welsh or Italian team. So you had an uneven fixture list. So that shouldn't really be the case anymore, apart from the fact that on the basis of this season, Ulster's extra three games are going to be against the three best other teams. But the thing anyway. is, this, this this almost negates the conference system, though, because the conference system meant that you had home and away fixtures against the other teams in your conference. But if you're not put, if you're not playing home and away against the other teams in your conference, then you may as well just have one league where everyone plays against everyone, and then you have the three extra games against the teams from your own country and then the top four go through to the playoffs anyway. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> tearing, tearing down the Pro 16 structure, one logical argument at a time. It's, it's, like, it's no, not even I get, like, the best case scenario for this is probably, like, mid-July. Like, that's the earliest I remember mm-hmm. getting fixtures, I think, so. Mm-hmm. I would be all for adding in quarterfinals as well, to be honest, I think. Well, we did have quarterfinals. Gotta... Well, notional quarterfinals. Yeah, but I, I'd be I'd be all for like the top eight making the playoffs instead of just the top four being a little bit more inclusive and uh, extending the playoffs a bit. Adam, with absolute every confidence here that the standard of the league is going to be considerably higher. Listen, <laughs> the eighth Benet- best team in the league is going to be worth a worth a playoffs, but. Anaton are on the rise in the Rainbow Cup. I can well, see that's them winning true. the like, I mean, next year. You know, they couldn't win a game in the Pro 14, but they're going to be the Rainbow Cup champions. So that just shows you the quality <laughs> of the league, top to bottom. Listen, add in the South African teams and Benetton come to life. Like, I think this is probably the best addition to the Pro 16 for the Italian sides since the Italian sides were added. Well, speaking of improvements, Jack Fogarty asks, what areas need strengthening for next oh. season? Positions would you hypothetically want to sign a player or develop further young talent? So, Michael, which position oh. group I'll take this as do you think Ulster need to see the biggest improvement in ne- next season? Well, it is hypothetical, of course, because they're not they're, they're not signing anybody. So, well, even so just though, uh, uh, you know, improvement from the players that are there in that position group <clears throat> as is. Uh, front row, uh, definitely, I think. And to a certain extent, perhaps the, the second or the front five, I would say, uh, primarily, if they could, they, they would need, I think, uh, improvement there. And obviously, if they could have 
sign more players ideally maybe you know in and around that that, that benchmark that's what I would say anyway um, Leonie Nakarawa we assume will flip second row back row we, we, we're not very sure what where he's going to necessarily fit in presumably the back row I suppose but not necessarily it's not not entirely clear maybe he won't even make the team I mean who's to say you know we, we don't know but that that's what I would have thought anyway on the basis that the other areas are, are reasonably good though I um, and with Michael Lowry also perhaps try him out a wee bit more at half again as well um you know, if nothing else, to get him game time, if, if they're going to keep plumping with Jacob Stockdale at uh, 15, it would seem very unfair that a player of Michael Lowry's calibre couldn't maybe get a game. That, that would be something else. That's not really strengthening, is it? So I've, I've lost the thread here completely. Basically, front five. How about that? I'm, I'm limping towards the end of the season here very much now. <laughs> much like Ulster, Michael, has run out of steam as this conversation yeah. is going on. There, there, there is no easy answer to it, particularly um, with with no new new players coming in. But that that would be the closest I would give to to an answer. Though exhaustion is creeping in here, I have to say. <laughs> well, as Michael gets increasingly exhausted with the concept of our podcast, <laughs> we'll rattle through the rest of these listener questions. And the weekly dono with David Drake leaving, will his role as senior athletic performance coach? Be replaced yeah well it's already being advertised i think the deadline was extended until monday so yeah, if anyone's seventh yeah yeah if anyone's out there with qualifications they uh, they still have the opportunity Just, to apply for that they're waiting for adam to put in his form <laughs> i i think i would be great in that role i'm just I'll put my name forward right now consider you'd this my qualification. you get everybody playing golf and that would you do that'd be athletic performance to be all about the golf course right Half the squad already play golf, so I just add a bit of an extra athletic perspective to it. You know, make, you them, make them sprint between their between the tee and their ball every time. There you are. Get There's that your, cardio going. You've just put in your application. And fixing the uh, problem of Ryan's taking too long. You're killing two birds with one stone here. Um, Man, get, get me a job at the PGA and with Ulster Rugby, and we'd solve every problem that each sport has. <laughs> We don't have enough people to do the podcast, frankly. So, uh, as it is, so. <laughs> you can't, um, right? Stephen McCormick, um, where is Ulster Rugby's annual report? Last one was published 2018 19. The treasurer's report is the only source of financials. Interested as a current and future season ticket holder, is the publication of the 2019 20 report rather late? Well, it's, it's considerably late because, um, these things normally come out in the summer. Um, now, the season wasn't completed in the summer, and we also had the switch from the April to April accounting period to the April to, or sorry, um, July to July accounting period. Now, Stephen mentions the financials there, which I think is the only thing that anybody really sort of flicks to first in, in this report, just to see what the budget is and how Ulster have hitch their financial targets more than anything else. Um, so David Nusifora has been speaking this morning, and this is actually just finished before we started um, doing the podcast. So from the financial aspect of it, Ulster next season, as will every aspect under the RFE auspices, will be operating under a 10% reduction of budget. That's a significant sum, really. Um, when you consider the set, what the size of what the budget is, I think you have to look at things like replacing Marcel with 
Nagawara, the loss of some, not luxury players, but luxury contracts, if you know what I mean. Very experienced players outside the starting 15 is obviously going to be part of that clawing back of the budget. But I suppose essentially what Nusifora said in terms of the financials today was that, like, to use his words, provinces need crowds. It is the lifeblood of provincial finances. So the RFU lost 35 million last year and is on track to lose 30 million this year. So it doesn't take an economist to work out how long that's going to take to claw back. The impact of this is going to be felt for years upon years upon years in terms of professional rugby, in terms of rugby at all levels. But I wouldn't see it as a case of, oh, well, Ulster budget's been reduced by 10% for the next accounting year. And that's going to then bounce back to the level that it is once once crowds get back because this money and then the cash reserves that have sort of been uh, decimated needs to be brought back in line. Like, again, to use Nusifora's words, this is a long-term issue. So not, not helpful in your uh, very specific Ulster requests, but in a more general sense, that's what, uh, what Nusifora was saying about that this morning. Obviously, if I'm, becoming, if I'm becoming Ulster's senior athletic performance director, Johnny, you've got a job waiting for you on Wall Street after all that. I did not make a particular success of GCSE Advanced Miles, it must be said. So <laughs> I don't think that would be good for anyone. Uh, yeah, we haven't mentioned Louis Ludic yet. So uh, JW has asked what a servant Louis Ludic has been during his seven years at Ulster. Obviously announced his... Uh, his retirement there during the week. We've not seen him since uh, since November, but um, he's asked if any memorable moments stand out for for either of you in terms of Louis Lydic. He's obviously been, uh, for my money, one of the <laughs> most successful imports that Ulster have really had in, in recent times. And you look at the contribution he was able to make on the field. I mean, he's, he's right up there with Pinar and Muller in terms of the buy-in that he gave to the province. I don't think there was anybody else that adopted Ulster more as their home than Louis Ludic and the fact that he is planning to stay here after retirement and continue on with Hellbent is a testament to the fact that he really likes it here and that he really wants to set down roots here with uh, with his family. Memorable moments. I, I remember his first try against the Scarlets uh, really announcing himself but just, for, for me it's it's more the career as a whole like L- Ludic wasn't that big standout signing that anybody really thought to themselves this guy's going going to be you know world-class player like Kutsia or Pinar or Muller but he's just been so reliable for in every single game that he's played I don't think there's anybody else you would rely on more whenever you put him on the pitch at fullback because you just knew he was going to do the basics right he was going to take the high balls he was going to make his tackles and he was going to be good with ball in hand so I don't think there's necessarily one standout moment that really I can remember more than any other but just he has been such a dedicated and loyal servant even over the last year where he hasn't really played that much um He's still been around the squad and he's still been such a positive influence. So for me, I don't think anybody can say that he owes Ulster anything. I think he goes into Mm -hmm. retirement with 
all of our best wishes and certainly he's been great with us he's always been really positive he I sorry I, I said I didn't have a standout moment I remember the Glasgow semi-final in the Pro 14 uh, Rory Best and Darren Caves last game Ulster got beaten 50-20 and Louis Ludic was put up for media afterwards and he still came up with a smile he still shook everybody's hand he was he was still very gracious with his time so look, I'll miss him and certainly I, I wish him all the very best in, in retirement and to his wife Shame and, and his son as well. So uh, all the very best, Lee. We will miss you. Yes, that was going to be my memory as well. Just him, uh, us standing there being like, I bet you nobody comes out to do post-match after this game and I conceding 50 in a semi-final when the season was over and him calling up and being like, smiling his way through it, answering all the questions in the way that he, uh, in this sort of talkative way that he always would have. And then at the end, be, uh, you know, th- thanks for the coverage throughout the season and all that. When you know that <clears throat> any normal person would have just been like, there's no way that I, that I want to go and talk to these people at this specific moment. My memory of him isn't probably one he, he would relish, but it, it, was, it also shows you the sort of guy he was. It was the time he was smashed by Bundiaki and I think either wrecked his cheekbone or eye socket or both. He was out for a very long time. It was an absolute horror injury. And many a person might not have come back from that, but he did. And he was still <laughs> still the quality player after a horrific accidental, albeit collision like that. Um, he came back. The other thing about him was as well, I think kind of went under the radar. He ultimately became Irish qualified. I don't know if anybody, anybody remembers this. And there was some talk about him possibly being involved in a wider Irish squad at some point, but it never came. Yeah, so I can't. I wish I could remember the detail now, but they kept him on, and then he, he they were also I think were allowed to keep him on, and then he 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 fulfilled the criteria to become qualified to play for Ireland. But unfortunately for Louis, I think it just came a little bit late in his career, and it wasn't to happen. But he he was yeah always a great great guy to deal with, always so positive no matter what happened. And he's still going to be around because he's going to be involved with Estonians. So uh, you never know. You might We might still encounter him from time to time. Uh, yeah, a really, really, really quality player and a really top guy. Yeah, I actually, I remember that uh, that Bondiagi collision because obviously in the mm. sports ground, you're, the press box is so much closer to the pitch than mm. anywhere else. I'm just saying anywhere else in Ireland, but anywhere else that I've actually been, I think. Um, you're closer to, the, closer to the action. And that happened not too far in front of where me and Adam were sitting and it was like a, a sickening collision like um, mm-hmm. but yeah definitely because uh, you talk about the Irish qualifier thing it was it was he had a two year contract originally and then was given an extension in order to become Irish qualified so he didn't count as against the NIQ quota which mm-hmm. was stricter back then I suppose but um, I like I always think it's mad that he essentially signed was signed by David Humphreys to play under um, Mark Anscombe. And by the time he arrived, neither of them were there. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he had the, I think it was the clause in his Asian contract that um, only kicked in if they didn't win promotion. And then he had like a week or something to decide once once that had come to pass. And by the time he got here, yeah, bo- both of them were away. So yeah, as you guys have both said, just you couldn't have asked for a more reliable import, I think, or someone to... Uh, to have bought in uh, to the players as much as they have. So, yeah, I I'd echo your statements and just all the best to him for, uh, for the future. Yes, just uh, as our last one here, we have one, another one from Cher K. Martin, who uh, sent us a lovely message of thanks for our podcasting over the season. So thanks very much for that. We do appreciate it. 
After last weekend, Monster v Cardiff in particular, is it still possible to justify the experiment that is the captain's challenge or is it time to scrap the concept and move on? Adam, I know you've got takes on this, so, so I'm going to throw this to you. I despise the captain's challenge. Like, I, I really do. And I think I've spoken about it on another podcast. I I was chatting to someone uh, who has a, a refereeing background and he was saying he was watching one of the games recently and it took two hours and 15 minutes to play the game and the ball was only in play for 35 minutes or something like that. Like, And a lot of that was down to captain's challenges that just keep slowing the game down. And the thing is, players are challenging things that they're not even sure about. Players are going up to referees and saying, we want to challenge something, but they can't pinpoint specifics about what they want to challenge. And that, for me, is the issue. It's it's not we want to challenge number 10's hit on number 5. It's we want to challenge a hit over here in the hope that they get something to keep the game going. And whenever you see a game like Munster Cardiff that is decided on something as small as a kickback into a ruck, that that to me is a sickening blow because, look, it is an infringement, but it's something so small that a player hasn't spotted that. A player has been shouted a message from the touchline and all of a sudden they've gone, oh, yeah, the player's kicked it back into the ruck. You know, no... I just think it's too slow. There's too much lottery in it. And to be quite frank, referees have a tough enough job as it is without these small decisions that they've missed being thrown up. There is a human element to it where referees will miss decisions. And as frustrating as that is for fans and for players, that's the nature of sport. Players make mistakes. Referees make mistakes. It happens. We don't need players randomly challenging things in the hope that they get a call because a referee missed a small infringement. I completely agree that it works in cases where someone has been hit high and it should have been picked up. But it's got to the point where players in South Africa are challenging line-out infringements, like a line-out not being straight or the tiniest bit of contact in the air just to try and slow the game down and try and win a call. Like, I, I I, don't like it. I just think that if if you look at the Rainbow Cup as a whole, there are too many decisions that are marginal that have changed the outcome of a game that ordinarily they shouldn't have. And even if the challenge, captain's challenge was made a permanent thing, it's, it's too, it's got too much power. I think you've either got to put really strict parameters on what you can challenge or you've just got to scrap it all together. Yeah, well, I think that's it. Like, I think whenever it came in, and I think I said this on the podcast itself, like, I think you had to look at anything that you could do to try and make the game safer and explore those avenues. But, like, I think you've highlighted it well there, Adam. Like, this idea of the final whistle blows and whichever team wants the game to keep going challenges something. And what are you challenging? Oh, anything. You know, because you can't, like, you can't find an infringement in any play in rugby if you look hard enough it's not like tennis where it's cut and dry the balls are in or out it's not like football where if you go looking for something you won't necessarily find it like if you want to look in rugby you will find it so the only option is to do what you've done or do what you've said there and which is what they have in the nfl you can challenge x y and z but you can't challenge 
A, B, and C and make it very mm. much defined because there's been too much confusion. Like the idea in that first Monster Leinster game of, oh, you can't challenge that. Why? Uh, you can't challenge a non-decision. But we've seen so many non-decisions then challenged throughout. Mm. So it's, it's been a model. Not a fan. I'm not a fan. Do you, do you Anything in its defense? Anything in its defense. Um, the only thing I could think of in its defense is, is if indeed maybe an official has got um, a call wrong, which has been absolutely vital to the end of the game. I think that did happen, didn't it, with the Ulster Connacht game when Michael Lowry, when they looked at it, had indeed committed an infringement. Um, but on the whole, I mean, I saw, I'm sure we've all seen situations where people have just used them to almost try and get players off the field. <laughs> and I also, you know, at the end of the Munster Connacht game, Connacht were leaping around. They thought they'd won the game, but no, no, we came back for a captain's challenge. Because Peter O'Mahony wanted to looked at incessantly whether the ball had been knocked on or not. I think from was it Stephen Archer? I'm not sure if it was or not. And um, it turned out that after uh, quite a few replays with Connacht, then having to you know stop the celebrations within a number of replays, and it was just interminable. If I remember, the match was over. Connacht had deserved to win. Give them the bloody win, and it turned out it was a knock on. Uh, anyway, uh, they reckoned. But, you know, it, it was just, you know what, I think it will, it's a switch off for people watching. The games can be pretty boring enough at times when people get penalties corner, penalties corner. This element might bring drama, but I think it brings actual boredom in the end, particularly in situations like that. We see enough replays with TMOs and other situations, but to have this hanging over it as well. And then when you get, was it the last five or 10 minutes? Yeah, you can challenge anything at all. And... You know, perhaps, you know, in some of the instances, it's been a good thing that the captain's challenge has been used earlier and lost because then, you know, well, that's one side that can't use it. But, yeah, I, I think it makes the last, the closing parts of the game a nonsense. Um, I can't really, I couldn't really amount to defence. Unfortunately, you know, um, I really ought to, in, in, you know, in terms of balance here, go against Adam and say, oh, no, no, it's actually not a bad thing. But I can't because... The game just, it takes longer and the games are long enough as it is. So, you know, please no more. Please <laughs> stop like to, it. To, to, you know? to take your point, Johnny, about safety, I completely agree. Anything that we can bring in to make the game safer is a good thing. But what does the captain's challenge add to safety that a TMO isn't already doing? Like you have yeah. a TMO checking every instance that they think is not a safe play if a referee thinks that there might have been foul play they ask their tmo will you check that and if the tmo spots something that the referee has missed they'll say we need to check something and you've got two assistant referees who are watching the play as well who can stick the flag out at any time a captain's challenge like i i don't think a player is going to notice something that is foul play that one of the referee, the two touch judges, or the TMO is going to miss, given that the angles that they all have to work with, I don't think a player has another angle or will have another perspective that one of those four will miss. So, and for the Munster Cardiff, the final, I didn't even realize that kicking the ball back into a ruck was a was an offense. Like I, th I thought that was just kind of the same as sort of rolling the ball about to get it in the right position to pass it from the scrum half. So. For me, look, the sooner I can go, the better. By all means, keep the goal line drop out. And um, I'm not a big fan of the 20-minute red cards either, but the captain's challenge for me just has to go. 
Yeah, I, I don't like the I don't like the dropout because it takes away the five meter scrum. But I understand why they're doing it because scrums are very boring as well and take how many resets, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So I understand the, the logic behind it, but um, I don't particularly like it. No, I do like it. I think, and Marty Moore was interested on this last week. I think the idea that teams now actually, when they're going for the line, have to be sure that they're going to get over rather than going for the mm. line and saying, right, well, we'll just reset and have another scrum and go again and go again. I think it adds a bit more jeopardy to uh, to goal line situations. So I, I do like that personally. But um, yeah, captain's challenge. Um, they've tried, but it's not really worked, which is an opt enough description of this podcast too. So we can all, we can all <laughs> understand where they're coming from. But um on that note, we're going to wrap for this week. We will be back next week to hopefully, fingers crossed, look back at Edinburgh and no doubt continue the uh, six-week-long wrap of this uh, of this season looking ahead. So I have been Jonathan Bradley. Thank you very much for joining us. Michael, thank you for your input. Thank you. This time I'm paying attention. I'm not drinking water, so I've done this properly this time. That's good. Thank you very much. Always appreciate it. Adam, who now for some reason is drinking, thank you for your input. It is water. It is water. Yes, thank you very much, guys. Always a pleasure. Stay safe, everyone. Thanks for listening.